0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So when we hear the name Winston Churchill, images of the cigar-chomping, overweight, elderly aristocrat who led England through their finest hour probably come to mind. What few people realize, however, is that as a young man, Churchill lived a life of romantic adventure and daring by fighting at the battlefront in three different wars before he was 23 years old, and he capped off his military career by serving as a 24-year-old war correspondent in the Boer War in Southern Africa, where he was taken prisoner, made an audacious escape, and returned home to England as a national hero. My guest today on the podcast has just published a detailed account of Churchill's capture and escape during the Boer War and how it launched his career as the statesman we remember today. Her name is Candace Millard. You've probably read her previous book, The River of Doubt, about Theodore Roosevelt's exploration of the Amazon. Her latest book is called Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, A Daring Escape, and the Making of Winston Churchill. On today's show, Candace and I discussed the supreme confidence Churchill had as a young man that he was destined for greatness and how he intentionally sought after dangerous military missions that would catapult him to fame. We also discussed the compelling leadership and persuasion ability Churchill displayed during the Boer War that would later propel his political career, as well as the similarities between Churchill and Teddy Roosevelt. Stay tuned for a fascinating podcast on one of history's most fascinating figures. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is Millard. That's spelled M-I-L-L-A-R-D. All right, Candace Millard, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so I've long been a fan of your work. I uh, loved your book, River of Doubt, about Teddy Roosevelt's adventure down an uncharted uh, part of the Amazon River. And you got a new book out, Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, Daring Us Escape, and The Making of Winston Churchill. Um A lot's been written about Churchill. He's one of those figures that gets biographers love to write about, but it's often about the later parts of his life. Um, What drew you to writing about a younger Churchill's capture and escape as a prisoner of war in the Boer War?
1: Well, as you say, we all... um no, Winston Churchill. I think there's something like twelve thousand books about him, but a lot of it obviously focuses on his time in World War II and his role in it, and um, and the fact that he was such an extraordinary leader. Um, but what interested me was what made the Winston Churchill we all know. Where did he come from? How did he have this incredible ability and confidence? And how was he able to project it to his people and to entire nations? And and the answer is South Africa. You know, if you, if you look at it, 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 this war not only propelled him to the political stage, he, he became a national hero during this war because of his escape and he had run for parliament before and lost. He ran again. And on the strength of his popularity, he himself says, um, coming out of the South African War, um, won the second time and it launched his political career. But more than that, you can see him so clearly at this young age um, with all the qualities we think of him having later in life with the, his, his audacity, his determination, his grit, his Agility and ingenuity, they all come into play in South Africa.
0: So yeah, you're right. When most people think of Churchill, they usually imagine the cigar-chomping, overweight, aristocratic mm-hmm. statesman leading Great Britain in their right. finest hour. But as a young man, and he was 24, 25 uh, during the Boer War, mm-hmm. um, Churchill lived a life of romantic daring, that culminated in the Boer Wars. And even before the Boer Wars, he had some military escapades. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that and and what drove him to put himself in harm's way like that?
1: So he had always loved war and been fascinated by it. Even as a child, he had 1,500 toy soldiers that he played with. And he also was a direct descendant of the first Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, who is considered to be one of uh, England's greatest Generals, and so he was very much aware of that legacy. And you know, he he was born into the highest ranks of the British aristocracy at the height of the British Empire. So he had a lot of wars to choose from. You know, the the British Empire ruled over 450 million people at that point, and so they were constantly putting down revolts from Egypt to Ireland, and um, and so Churchill. Thought of war as sort of his vehicle to fame and then political power. He called it the glittering gateway to distinction. And so you're right. So by the time he goes to South Africa. He's 24 years old. But this is his fourth war on three different continents. You know, he, he went to Cuba um, uh, right before the beginning, uh, sort of the beginning skirmishes of the Spanish-American War. He went to British India and fought in Malacan. He, um, and he went to the Sudan and fought in the famous Battle of Omdurman. So he was a very experienced, seasoned um, soldier by the time he goes to South Africa.
0: And I imagine there was something about the culture of Victorian England that compelled him to put himself at the battlefront.
1: Right. To England at that time, it wasn't, you don't, they didn't think really about war. They thought about gallantry and they spent a lot more time sort of working on parades and pressing their uniforms and shining their medals than they did actually thinking about the realities of war, even though they had been in so many of them. But many of them were um, colonial wars where they, you know, they had far better um, weapons and more men and could easily overwhelm their enemies. Um, But that turned out to be a serious problem for them from for them in South Africa, because they were facing a completely different kind of enemy there.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a bit. It seems like the Boer War really ushered in modern warfare.
1: Yeah, it did. Absolutely. There's no question it was some of the earliest guerrilla fighting. They even called it the Khaki War, because it was one of the first times that the British army was sort of resentfully convinced to stop wearing their dashing red coats. They hated the khakis. They said it made them look like bus drivers, but they were still fighting in these perfect, precise lines sort of set up for the slaughter. Um, It was also some of the first concentration camps and, you know, changing of um, modernization of weapons. And, um, and it really prepared the British Army for World War One.
0: So uh, we've written a lot about Churchill, and I've read a lot about him. And one thing about him is he is an egoist, and he's a self-described egoist. He will, he will cop to that uh, accusation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talk about this right from the get-go in your book, that from a young age, he felt he was destined for greatness. Uh, where did this feeling of certainty that he would be a great man one day come from?
1: I think you're born with it, you know. But I think what's different about Churchill is that um, he he not only believed it, and I think a lot of young people, certainly a lot of young men believe that they're destined for greatness, that they're special, that they're different, and they're going to do something extraordinary. But he didn't sit around waiting for something to happen to him. He went out and he found his opportunities again and again and again. And he threw himself not only into war, but into the most brutal battles he could find. And he would do these extreme things just to get attention. So he would get medals. And then he thought, you know, he can turn this into to fame and to power. You know, he, he, for instance, rode a white pony on the battlefield in Malek and to the horror of the people around him just to get noticed. But as you say, he said he had faith in his star. And I remember one of my favorite things he wrote to his mother um, when he was in the middle of a war and he had seen his friends, not just Killed but slaughtered. He said he didn't think the gods would create so potent a being as himself for so prosaic an ending. <laughs> <laughs> so he just didn't think it was going to happen to him because he had this larger life ahead of him.
0: Right. And I guess one thing he did that was very unbridged is like he shared with others mm-hmm. his premonitions about his greatness.
1: He did. And, you know, other people around him believed it too. But the funny thing is, again and again and again, when I was doing research, People would say, you know, I can't stand that kid, Winston Churchill. He drives me crazy. He's going to be prime minister one day, but I just can't stand him. And his, he, he was openly ambitious, and that just wasn't done in the British military and the and the British society in which he had been born. And so he, I, I think of it kind of as the American in him, actually, the kind of brash pusher. Um, and his mother was American.
0: Right, and I mean, but one thing I remember from reading about Churchill, like he was sort of a sensitive boy, and like he was kind of overweight, um, you know, kind of soft. He was very like he, he, like even as an old older man, he liked to wear silk pajamas, and he really pampered himself. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I I can imagine people looking at this sort of aristocrat guy who has kind of a lisp, uh, not super athletic, thinking, "Yeah, he's saying he's destined for greatness, but I I don't know if that's true." Did, Did was how did Churchill? How was he able to transform himself?
1: Well, I think that um, it's interesting to me his his early life when he was a child because um, especially because he ends up becoming a writer right an extraordinary writer that 's how he that's how he supported himself for most of his life and that's actually how he got to south africa as a correspondent and so not only is he sort of you know not strong physically but he thinks and is is seen as not strong intellectually which seems incredible to us now but because he um wasn't a great student they didn't put him into you know the greek and latin classes which were for the, just set aside for the Um, the more capable students, and they just kind of stuck him in the regular English class. But he had this extraordinary teacher, and he came to know the English language inside and out. And so he had this power, actually, over other people, which as you know, translated to incredible power. I mean, the the power of words later on is an incredible weapon and a credible tool to inspire other people. And so he had that throughout his life. And, you know, as he became a young man, he was more fit and because he had thrown himself into these situations again and again. um, And he was always very, very confident. So he believed that he would do fine on the battlefield. And he
0: did. Yeah, he did. Um, So you mentioned his mother. Uh, His mother was American. Churchill had a really interesting family life as a boy and young man. I'm sure it had a huge influence on his ambitions. Um, Can you tell us a bit about about his family and his relationship with his parents and how it affected him throughout the rest of his life?
1: So his father was Lord Randolph Churchill, who had been the chancellor of the exchequer and had been leader of the House of Commons, so a very famous and powerful man who um, was actually very, very hard on his son and didn't spend much time with him. And it was, I think, one of the great regrets of Churchill's life. You know, he, he later said that he, he wished he had been, you know, a, a shopkeeper's son um, because he would have had a chance to get to know his father, which would have been a joy to him. But as it was, his parents, you know, sent him off to boarding school when he was seven years old and he they just never made time for him his father was very very busy with his political career and his mother was very busy with her her social life she was um as you say she was this Incredibly beautiful American socialite, born Jenny Jerome, and um, and she when she came to England, she became this, the star, the sort of the glittering center. Of course, there were people who resented her, um, you know, because of who she was, because she was American, for one thing. But she just didn't care, you know. She loved life. She loved being the center of attention and um and she was really too busy for him often and it's um i'm a mother myself and i actually found it really heartbreaking to read his letters um home to his parents from boarding school begging them to visit him and they just never did they again and again he would even like figure out you know what trains they could take and what the schedule would be and how they could then quickly get back to london um and then they just didn't take the time um but then Churchill's father died when he was just 45 years old. Um, he died a very um, public and tragic death. And, um, and then Churchill himself became interesting, actually, to his mother. He um, became a young man of consequence, and she had all these um, relationships. She had all this power with very powerful men. Um, Elvis influence. And he told her, he said, look, this is a pushing age. We must push with the best. And I want you to get me these military appointments because I want to be able to go anywhere in the world where the most interesting fighting is going on. And she helped him again and again and again.
0: Yeah, that was interesting. His mother was like very influential in helping his political career. And even she tried to pull strings while he was uh, a prisoner of war as well. Um, And you're right. The letters, I've read those letters that Churchill wrote when he was in boarding Mm -hmm. school, and it just, it breaks your heart. I mean, it's super sad. Um, Absolutely. So when Churchill was a young man, I guess he's about 24, he uh, begins his foray into politics by running for uh, member of parliament in Oldham in 1899. Um, He loses. How did someone with, with so much unbridled ambition like Churchill respond to that defeat?
1: Well, he was completely deflated, you know, and um and he felt like, you know, he had all this promise and he believe strongly in himself, but it was a different thing to try to convince everybody else. And um, and it was difficult to get there. So nothing kind of had worked. He had tried, you know, war and he had tried politics and he, he you know, here he was, he had no income. His, you know, he had been born in Blenheim Palace um, with all this, you know, incredible opulence around him, but they didn't have any money. You know, even um, the people who he didn't inherit the Title of the palace, but even those who did, I mean, they were desperately sort of selling off the gems and the library and the in the art collection just to try to stay afloat and his father had left him very little money Um, his mother had spent most of it and um, so he needed to um, find another way and he believed that he needed another war he needed another opportunity to prove himself and so when he heard these the rumblings of war happening in South Africa he saw that as his opportunity
0: Okay. So let's go there. So before we talk about Churchill's involvement in the Boer War, let's talk a little bit about the background of the work for those who aren't familiar with it. So it took place in South Africa. Um, Who were the British fighting exactly during the Boer War?
1: So the Boers were this um, group of largely Dutch, Huguenot, and German immigrants who had been living in South Africa for centuries. They were um, very religious they were unabashedly racist and they were stubbornly independent so most of all they just wanted to be left alone and um, they're trying to get away from the british empire by um, moving into the interior of Africa. So in 1835, just two years after the British Empire had um, abolished slavery, um, which was sort of the final straw for the Boers, they, um, they took what they called the Great Track, which was moving hundreds of miles from the Cape into the African interior, and they established three different republics at that time. Um, But unfortunately for them, they found gold and diamonds, um, especially in an area called the Transvaal or the South African Republic, one of their three um, republics. And um, Paul Kruger, who would become president of the Transvaal, said that this gold will cause our country to be soaked in blood. And he was right. So just a few years later in 1880, the first Boer War took place between the British and the Boers and um, to the British they actually lost. It was a very short war, but they lost. And the Boers had sort of temporarily had their independence, but I think they both knew that the British weren't going to forget about it. I mean, it was a the area itself was very interesting, to the British anyway, because obviously they had to get around the Cape to get to India. But then with the gold and diamonds, they just weren't going to let go. And so it just became more and more tense between the two groups.
0: Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Okay. And I mean, I thought it was inter- I mean, what's interesting about the board War? it was Europeans fighting Europeans in Africa. Um, I think Mm -hmm. some people have, I mean, and that's, some people have called it like the Mm -hmm. American revolution in Africa and with a lot of Americans sympathized Mm -hmm. with the Boers.
1: Right. Um, Right. Absolutely.
0: So Churchill goes to South Africa, but he goes not as a soldier, but as a a war reporter, um, Mm. for a guy who loved and romanticized battle. Why did, why not go as an officer in the military?
1: Because he had already left the military, and he knew again, he's trying to make money, and he this was his ticket to South Africa, and um, and he had written while so he had done this unusual thing when he was um, taking part in these other wars earlier on. He had been both um, a combatant and a correspondent, and in fact, because um, he had so openly criticized. Those who are in command, especially Kitchener, um, they had had to make a rule that you couldn't be both. you couldn't both write about the war and fight in it. Um, and so he um, he very quickly got offers from all of these newspaper publishers asking him to write for for them because he was an incredibly skilled reporter. I mean, not only um, was he incredibly ambitious and intrepid, so he would get wherever something was happening, he was the first person there. Um, but he was also uh, obviously brilliant, and his analysis was incredibly insightful. Um, and But most of all, his prose was absolutely beautiful. I mean, you know, I read a lot, a lot, a lot of newspaper articles um, from that time covering this war, and without question, Winston Churchill's writing is head and shoulders above everybody else. And then he was smart. And so he has all of these offers. And so he takes it to different people and he's like, look, this, this um, newspaper is going to give me this. What will you give me? And in the end, he ends up becoming the highest paid correspondent that England had ever had.
0: That's crazy. How much was he paid in today's dollars?
1: He was paid a huge amount. I can't remember, to be honest. It was something like close to $100,000 um, to cover the floor. And he also had um, a huge stipend. So he, they would cover, you know, all of his expenses while he was there. And he, as you were saying earlier, I mean, he... Um, he was willing to risk his life and throw himself into these dangerous situations, but he didn't see the point in being uncomfortable or uncivilized while he was there. So he brought with him his valet, and he also bought all of this alcohol to take with him. So, you know, a very nice selection of wines, and he bought something like 18 bottles of 10-year-old Scotch whiskey to take along, and the newspaper paid for it all. That's
0: crazy. And I mean, what's amazing, too, is keep, keep I think people need to keep in mind, he was only 24 when he was when this happened. Um, so he's right.
1: I, and he's, and he's, this is not only his fourth war, he's already written three books and re, run for parliament. So he's a little ambitious.
0: Right. It makes me feel like a slacker, <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a complete slacker. Um, I can keep up with this guy. Right. Um, so how did he become captured as a POW? Cause I mean, if he was a journalist, um, you would think that, well, okay, he's not really a, a Combatant. So the laws of war would say you're not, a, you can't hold him as a prisoner of war. Why did the Boers treat him like a combatant?
1: Because he acted like a combatant. Because he's Winston Churchill and he couldn't help himself. So he <laughs> he gets to this um, little town called Escort, which is as close as you can get to the front. The front was then Ladysmith, which is just south of Pretoria and um, Ladysmith is completely surrounded by the Boers. It's under siege. You can't get in or out. And the only thing that they have in this camp is they have this armored train that goes out for reconnaissance. And every person in the camp, all these soldiers, all these officers hate this armored train because you know, it seems like, oh, that's a great idea. It would be protective, but it's just a sitting duck. You, you know, It's an obvious, easy target for the boards. They know where it's going. They know it has to come back on the same tracks. And um, so the men hated it. They called it a death trap. Um, but a friend of Churchill's, Almer Holden, um, who was in charge of a of a regiment and escort was ordered to take the armor train out for reconnaissance and he invited churchill to go with him and both of them knew that it was just a disastrous decision to take the train out especially that day they had just spotted the boars just outside of escort just the day before and um but Halden didn't have a choice churchill had a choice but he was restless he was frustrated and he would later say that he was eager for trouble. So he didn't hesitate for a minute when Haldim invited him along. And, um, and he gets on the train, and um, the boars, of course, are watching. And as soon as it goes past them, they go to the bottom of a hill, and they pile rocks on the tracks. Then they go to the top of that hill. They wait for the train to come back, as they knew it would. And as soon as it gets to the top of the hill, they just have this hailstorm of shells and bullets and the train does exactly what they want it to do it goes down the hill as fast as it can to try to get away from the attack and it crashes into these rocks at the bottom of the hill Um, the first two cars are catapulted off the tracks and um Several men are killed. Many are horribly wounded. And Winston Churchill, who's one of the few civilians on the train, and again, is only 24 years old, he jumps out and immediately takes charge of the defense. I mean, he's running back and forth, shouting orders, organizing a way for the train to to get away. And what's even more extraordinary is that Everyone listens to him. You know, I mean, there were plenty of legitimate uniformed soldiers on that train. Halden, who was in charge, he is, too, he's also listening to Churchill. He's taking command, and he, he lets him have at it, and... They, and Churchill succeeds. The, the train finally um, gets. A, it has to shove one of the cars off the tracks. He figures out a way to do that, and it gets away. And every man who survives, who gets out alive without being killed or captured, credits saving his life, credits the, the, the saving of his life to Winston Churchill.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And so the Boers captured because he's acting as a combatant. But there, I guess you also mentioned in the book that they were keen on keeping him because I guess his father had... Kind of rubbed them in the wrong way, and they wanted to like I don't know. They hold on to this guy because he's the son of the guy that kind of <laughs> did us wrong.
1: Right? They they are thrilled to have Winston Churchill because yeah, one he's a he's the son of a lord um, who represents everything that they hate about the British: their arrogance and their aristocracy. And, um, and also, as you say, Randolph Churchill had been there just a few years earlier and had um, written letters home that were published in British newspapers, excoriating the Boers um, for their backwardness, for not being educated, but mostly uh, for their treatment of, of Native Africans, which was absolutely true, um, but it didn't make them hate him any less.
0: Right. So I mean, he got captured a prisoner, but the way you described it, it doesn't seem like it was... That terribly bad. The conditions were that bad. It seemed like Churchill was able to wander the streets. I mean, he was able to buy stuff, hats, clothing, liquor, and he made friends with, I guess, the minister of war for the Boers or something like that. Mm-hmm. What were the conditions like?
1: Yeah, he wasn't able to leave, but they were, you yeah, know, incredibly um, comfortable. He the the Boers really hated the thought that the British thought that they were these backward buffoons. And so they went out of their way to show that they were very civilized. And so this was a prison just for officers. And as you say, yeah, he, I mean, he was able to have a, a barber come in and cut his hair. He was able to order a tweed suit. He, they, got, they got the newspapers in. Um, when it was hot, they let them sleep in the hallways instead of in their rooms Um And so they had sort of this comfortable life. But for Churchill, it was absolutely unbearable. And from the minute he was captured, he was determined to win his release, whether it was arguing he wasn't a combatant. They weren't listening to that because they obviously had seen it and they had read the newspaper accounts um, from the other men who had been on the train praising Churchill or through escape, you know, and he he would write about it. He, he would remember how it felt to be a prisoner for the rest of his life. And he would say that his captivity, he hated more than he had ever hated any period in his whole life. And, um, and he would remember, you know, when he later on in life, um, when he came to power, when he was a home secretary, he um, made a point of making sure that prisoners um, had access to books, had access to the outdoors and to exercise, um, because he remembered that as just being this unbearable situation.
0: All right, so Churchill had to get out of there. He started making plans when um, his his um, channels of trying to talk his way out didn't didn't come to fruition. Um, his original plans, and in, in typical Churchillian fashion came up with this like really grandiose and complicated plan. Um, And people were like, yeah, let's do that. But then uh, when he got, there's a certain point, they're like, no, that's actually not a good idea. Um, Can you talk a little about Churchill's original plan to escape?
1: Right. So again, this is Winston Churchill. So he's not going to just, you know, have some quiet little plan where just he can escape. No, he wants to take over the entire prison and then take over the prison where the soldiers are kept and then take over Pretoria and kidnap the president and end the war. So this is really, really (laughs) elaborate, grandiose plan. And, um, and, you know, everybody's like, that's not going to work. That's ridiculous. Um, and they kind of um, shoo him away. Um, but he overhears his friend, Almer Holden, um, who's the guy who had invited him to go on the train um, at the beginning. And this other guy, Adam Brockie, who's a really interesting guy who had been in South Africa for quite a while, knew the train really well and actually spoke. Zulu and Afrikaans. And he overhears them talking about a plan of their own and he wants in.
0: So yeah, they, they decided to make this plan and all the, all three of them were going to escape together, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, Churchill ended up being alone and he had to get back to, I forgot where it was. He had to travel you know a couple hundred miles to get to safety. And it was, the, the area was teeming with boars. Um, so how did he make that escape? I mean, was it, it's just primarily luck or was there some skill and savvy involved?
1: So he, um, as you say, he's able to, so the, their plan is just, um, you know, there's this six and a half foot tall fence surrounding the prison yard and there, there are armed guards everywhere. But they see that at night when the electric lights they have these new electric lights, when they come on, there's one corner of the yard that's still dark and they think that, you know, if a guard's turned at just the right moment, they can quickly get over, and um, and they um, Brocky and Holden had tried and were kind of giving up for the night. Churchill gave it one more try and got over. Um, and Holden and Brocky couldn't join him. Um, the problem was that they had all the provisions. Churchill found himself on the other side. He couldn't get back in. He'd be shot. But he's on the other side of the fence with no map, no compass, no food, no weapon he doesn't speak the language. And um, and the Boers, when they find out, are humiliated and enraged that anyone would escape, but especially that it would be Winston Churchill. And they are determined to catch him. And he has ahead of him almost 300 miles of enemy territory. He's trying to get to um, what's now Mozambique, was in portuguese east africa and um and a lot of it is luck i mean it's it you know he he and he fluctuates between sort of this easy confidence and and despair and um and it's really just an extraordinary extraordinary story of survival and um it really is incredible that that he did come out alive
0: right and we won't get in the details of his lucky breaks that he got, but uh, save that for the book. But yeah, it, Churchill indeed had a had a star uh, shining upon him. So he he he, he returns uh, to England, and he's a hero, a national hero. So I mean, if there wasn't a Boer War and there wasn't an escape from this prison, would there have been a Churchill that led Britain during their finest hour?
1: Absolutely, I think that he would have found a way no matter what. You know, he just. He just—he never gave up. He never stopped, and that's what made him so valuable during World War II. And that is what was going to propel him to the forefront of the national stage, um, no matter what. Now, this was a, a faster and a more um, exciting way to get there, um, and it's a and it's a it makes for a a really incredible. Story and it was a pivot point in his life. You know, he would later say, "You know, this misfortune, his capture, had I known it, was to lay the foundations for my for my later life." And it and it absolutely did. But there's no question in my mind, at least, that he would have found a way there somehow. Somehow.
0: All right, we mentioned earlier, Candace, that your previous book was about Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. um, his adventure down the river of doubt in the Amazon, um, and. Churchill and Roosevelt lived in about the same time period, Mm -hmm. some of that same era. As you were writing about Churchill, did you find similarities that existed between him and Roosevelt?
1: Constantly. I was constantly stunned by how much they were alike. You know, they were both um, such incredibly ambitious and arrogant men they were both incredibly well-read they were both extraordinary writers um they were both born leaders you know they I, i think it's interesting to study people like this because i i really believe that to be a great leader you have to be born a great leader and i think you know like any other skill you can learn it to some limited extent but um But I don't think that you can be a Winston Churchill or a Theodore Roosevelt if you're not just born that way. And it was really interesting to me, just to quickly go back to the attack on the armored train, as he's giving orders there comes a moment when um, the the train driver jumps out of his cab and he's been hit by a fragment of a shell and he's bleeding and he's furious. And he looks at Churchill and he says, look, they don't pay me enough for this. I'm not a member of the military. And he's going to make a run for it. And Churchill realizes that if he does, then they have no hope because nobody else can, can um, drive the train. And so he immediately gives him this sort of you know, Mini St. Crispin's Day speech. You know, look, this isn't a terrible thing. that has happened to you. This, on the contrary, this is an extraordinary and rare opportunity, and you can prove your gallantry, you can prove your bravery and your devotion to your country if you get back in that cab. And if you do, I will make sure that you're acknowledged for it. And the guy looks at him and says. Okay. And he does, and he turns around, and he gets back in the cab, and he does everything Churchill says. And Churchill's 24, and Churchill's not even a member of the military. So he just, he, not only was he himself... Deeply confident, but it was something that was contagious. He could, he could, he could transfer that to whomever he was talking to, or entire nations. You know, if if he believed in you, if he believed that you were brave, that you were resourceful, that you were extraordinary, and you could do extraordinary things, you believed it too, and you were capable of it.
0: Well, Candace, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your book?
1: Oh, thank you very much. So they can go to my website, CandiceMillard.com, or um, they can just pick up a book anywhere.
0: Awesome. Well, Candice Millard, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you my very much. My guest today
0: was Candice Millard. She is the author of the book Hero of the Empire. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at CandiceMillard.com. And also check out the show notes at AOM.IS slash Millard. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-D. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Our show is edited by Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you have any audio editing needs or music production needs, they're the place to go. You can find them at creativeaudiolab.com. And if you've enjoyed the show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.